okay now. Welcome to... Hey, Great Shot. This is the Great Shot Podcast brought to you by Cracked Rackets. My name's Alex Gruskin. Joining me as always, my doubles partner, partner in crime. And you know what? This is a little bit like when Harry Potter got his wand back because I missed you for an episode. Max Rothman, hey, Great Shot. You missed me for an episode, and I came back with a goatee. Is that, <laughs> is that weird for you? Yeah, what happened? What, what What's up with you? How's your Thanksgiving? It was good. It was good. Got a little sunny weather out in Los Angeles. <laughs> of um, course. Also went to the, the Wisconsin game, which was fun. Well, going to Wisconsin was fun. Losing to Wisconsin wasn't fun. <laughs> was uh, it fun seeing Brandon Peters get rocked? No. <laughs> no. I, got, I had a lot of Wisco fans around me who were way more excited than I was. So. Yeah, I can imagine. But uh, so a little housekeeping before we get into the episode. So a little cracked rackets news, you know, with this being the tennis off season, we've got a lot of time to get a lot of good content created. And uh, Max, why don't you tell us a little bit about the content we've got? Yeah, so we've got a little College Tennis Tribune series coming your way. Uh, by the time this pod comes out, there's going to be a nice little UCLA article, <laughs> uh, which will be pretty cool. And then the next gen ATP series will be back. So we, I know we just finished the, the 96s and the 97s, and we're going to be starting with the 98s this coming week. And I'm pretty sure the oldest of the 98s is Michael Moe. I'm going to have to do a little research. It's either him or Tiafo. I'm pretty sure it's I think Moe. You're, I think you're right with Moe. Yeah, and so, you know, that'll be coming out soon. In Great Shot Podcast News, you know, our latest episode, I hope you guys had a chance to listen, was with our first guest ever, Jonathan Kelly. Um, it was a pleasure to have him. He was kind enough to record with us Thanksgiving morning, and we did a review, really, of American tennis and what their 2017 season looked like we also played a little game of trivia during our changeover chat it was a lot of fun so you guys should really go check that out you know we've taken a bit of a hiatus from the next gen series but one of the reasons we're doing that is because max fliegner our very own producer is back home in a semester break from college and so you know for our next episode we're really hoping to get him me and max rothman in the booth so you know be ready for that that's going to be a lot of fun the old crew back together (laughs) exactly i don't think we've done that since the SoundCloud days. Wow, that's crazy. And I actually get to meet Fliegler. <laughs> I, don't, I feel like we've talked about this before, but for those of you who don't know, I've actually never met him. I know. Which is the most just outrageous Two maxes, a continent apart. You're in LA. He's in, you know, he's at Dartmouth in Hanover. Yeah. And so I mean, I've met him over FaceTime. That's, <laughs> that's, that's, the, that's the millennial way of meeting people nowadays. <laughs> and I think our uh, first live video for Cracked Rackets will be you two, you know, meeting, maybe a little hug. We'll see what happens. Of course, Max and I will get back into our next gen series, and we're planning to do that in a little bit. But before we do that, we want to get into a topic. You know, by the time this podcast comes out, this event will have finished about two weeks ago. But we want to talk about the men's ATP World Tour Finals because there's a ton of great tennis. And, you know, I just think we we can take a break, you know, talk about the things we enjoy. Yeah, I hear you. I mean... I do love the next gen guys. Yeah, exactly. We haven't forgotten about them. They're oh, not no, going definitely anywhere. Definitely not. <laughs> but we we definitely want to cover this. This is a, a fun tournament. A lot of good tennis. Some unexpected players in it for the first time. And yeah, I, I think we gotta talk about it a little bit. No, that's a great transition. Let's talk a little bit about the race for that eighth spot. You know, again, our first shameless plug, but we did talk about this a little bit in our emergency Jack Sock podcast. 
But this really came down to that Paris Masters event, and you know, you had Pablo Carrena Busta, Juan Martin Del Potro, Sam Query, Kevin Anderson, John Isner, and of course, Jack Sock as the contenders going into that event. Of course, you don't need us to remind you that Jack Sock ended up winning the Paris Masters and qualifying for the event, becoming the first American since Marty Fish in 2011 to qualify for the World Tour Finals. In case you listeners didn't know about the ATP World Tour Finals and how the participants are selected, we'll give you a little background about that. So, of course, the ATP World Tour Finals uses the year-end rankings as their criteria for selecting players for this event. Usually, the players' results at the Grand Slams, the results at the Masters events, and then their six best other tournament results are included for their selection. Of course, Nadal and Fed had accumulated so many points. They had qualified well earlier in, during the year, but, you know, towards the end, it was exciting for that eighth spot. Particularly. Classic, classic Federer and Nadal doing no, that. No, a, a fun fact, but the only three players who played this year's tournament who played in 2016 were David Goffin, who, that's a lie. That's not someone who did it. <laughs> Um, hey, great shot. <laughs> the only players who played in the 2016 event were Marin Cilic, Dominic Team, and Grigor Dimitrov. So, you know, you had five new participants this year. Obviously, Fed and Nadal had played before, but they didn't play it last year. You want to introduce who our field was this year? Yeah, I mean, like we said, it's kind of a, a new field for, for those tennis fans who have watched this tournament over the years. So this year's field, we got Rafa Nadal, Roger Federer, Alex Virov, Dominic Thiem, Grigor Dimitrov, Dimitrov, as some may say, Marin <laughs> Cilic, David Goffin, and our boy, Jack Sock, yeah. who both of us, after watching some highlights and some of his matches, I think might be one of our new favorite players. No, I look, we'll get, we have beaten the Jack Sock story to death now. <laughs> Jonathan and I talked about that for a while. We obviously had an emergency pod, but yeah. we will certainly get into his level of play as we go on in this podcast. Yes, I sir. do want to start and, again, talk about the format a little bit. So, you know, this tournament starts out with round robin. There are two groups of four. This year the groups were named the Pete Sampras group and the Boris Becker group. Since Pete Sampras and I have the same type of eyebrows, I'm going to introduce that group. You can do Becker's since you're also a redhead. The Pete That's Sam- fair. People, people have compared me to Becker before in my, in oh my, my, in my younger days. The Red Rocket. The Red Rocket. <laughs> he was the Red Rifle. <laughs> I don't remember. But, yeah, I, I guess that's not a bad comparison. But the Pete Sampras group, that's Rafa Nadal and, of course, P- Pablo Carreno Busta, who replaced him. And, again, we'll get into that. Dominic Team. Grigor Dimitrov, and David Goffin. Really good group. Interesting that there are two one-handed backhands in that group. I just think that's always fun. Can you, can you imagine being Carreno Busta and all of a sudden finding out Nadal is out and then just having to fly out there on a whim? And Well, I will say Nadal had pulled out of Paris early. He that's did true. have knee concerns, so I'm sure you know that flight from Paris to London is not that far. I no. bet Pablo probably just stayed around. He was like, I actually might play this match. And you know, if Rafa, being the type of competitor he is, being that he's a gentleman, he may have called Pablo and said, hey, I'm not feeling my best. You may want to come to this event because I might pull out. And so, you know, you were telling me about the prize money earlier. I would make that flight. You make it back for sure. I mean, literally, you could lose all your matches and make a hundred grand. Yeah, I'm, I'm in. Yeah, and it's the last event of the year, exactly. So, you know, if I'm the ninth, the first guy out, I'm definitely willing to make that flight and wait. But again, you want to introduce to us the Becker group. Yeah, the Becker group. We got Roger Federer, Zverev, Chilich, and Sock. I think possibly the stronger group. Um, you know. Really? So that's our first debate. I'm into that. So let's talk about what the seedings would look like. 
we're going to assume Nadal was the one seed, right? Because he ended the year number uh, one. Sure. He's the one you seed. You fed the two. No, no, but you put the two and three in the other group, right? And I, th- I feel like that's critical because then you have Fed and Zverev. Zverev is considered the three. Right. Is that right? It's, it's a weird three. Right? It's a weird three it's to have. I don't like to consider Zverev a three, but I also think that if I had to put these guys on teams against each other, I would much rather take the Becker team than the Sampras team. Or maybe they thought we can't have Dimitrov and Fed in the same group because we don't want the same player. You're you, playing don't, you don't want Fed and Baby. Exactly. Fed it's just all going to look the same, so they're going to be separated at first. Yeah. I guess the so then the four seed in this case would be Dominic team. And then the five is Dimitrov. I like that four-five pairing. I guess Zverev team Dimitrov. At yeah. that point, they're a little interchangeable. Obviously, after the tournament, we right. find out differently. I mean, and and again, I if you look to the the seven and eight, I'd rather have Sock than Gofen. What about yeah. Chilich? I feel um, like Chilich is the eight seed, right? Because Gofen is playing. He's playing really well. But well, okay. But Sock was the last person to make it, That's so he's true. the technical eight seed. That's very, very but fair. Sure, as far as skill, eh, I'd still rather have Chilich over Gofen. I guess if you're doing the six and seven, how is Gofen not in the Boris Becker group? I mean, to me, that doesn't make sense because shouldn't it go? You're going to have you know the one and then the two and three. And, sorry, so one group is going to be two, three, six, seven. The other group is going to be one, one four, four, five, five eight. eight. So that's what I'm saying. Six and seven, that's definitely Chilich, and I guess... And go Fens. Yeah, so I, I just don't understand. I don't know. These groups are a little lopsided. I agree. It's, it's yeah. It wasn't exactly right. I feel like they could have been a little bit more balanced. So in my ideal group, and again, we can you know cut this if it isn't interesting, but I would say if you're doing it fairly, it's Nadal, Team Dimitrov, Chilich. And then yeah. go Fens, Sock, Zverev, Fed. Yeah, that's fair. I I do I do gotta say as far as the results went for within the group, totally expected the results from the Becker group. You know, I I expected Fed to go three and zero. You know, Sock and Zverev could have been interchangeable. Had a great match. If you if you haven't had a chance to see that match or highlights, I'd highly recommend it. Super entertaining. But the the other one, I did not expect TM to go one and two. I mean. You know, the way he's been playing towards the end of the season, eh, maybe expected, but I'm surprised. I, I really, I at least expected him to be close with Dimitrov and, you know, losing to Gofen too, that's that's a, that's a bummer. Well, so I disagree with you. Obviously, if Nadal is healthy and playing in the group, you imagine he would go 2-1 and one as well, maybe beat Dimitrov, and Dimitrov goes 2-1, and one, you know, a lefty versus a one-handed backhand. Yeah. How many times have we seen that? So Nadal dropping out does affect things. Definitely. I also thought Gofen played outstanding. And, you know, I think we've talked about the results. We'll get into those as we get to the semifinals. But it's time to start talking about the matches. The first match I do want to talk about, and hey, what a segue because we just mentioned Nadal. We have to talk about his match versus Gofen. That's a match that was an incredibly high level of tennis. Gofen ends up beating Nadal 7-6, 6-7, 6-4. But Gofen got broken serving for the first set at 5-3. He got broken serving 5-3 in the second set. That's a match Nadal fought off five match points. Obviously, he had some knee ailments, and so for him to just be out there playing um, at such an incredibly high level, especially at his age, was remarkable. What would you think? Yeah, I mean, I don't think anyone expected the the result of this match. Um, you know, like like you said, Gofen's playing great. He played great throughout the entire tournament, and it started right here. And maybe maybe Nadal helped him kind of get in that gear, feel like he had to play 
at his best to compete with these guys. And, and yes, I understand that, you know, he's in the top 10 right now and, and feels like he deserves to be there, but he's not a guy that's typically been up there. And I think this is where he was finally making a statement and saying, hey, I deserve to be here. Well, so let's talk a little bit about the stats of these match. I actually found a really cool page that gives us the distance covered. And no, you don't get to say that stat because I did the research, so don't give me that look. But let's talk about the distance covered in this match because it is truly incredible. And the distances were given in feet, so I apologize. I'll give approximation to miles. But in this match, Gofan covered a total of 14,880 feet, which is right around three miles, a little less. Nadal goes 14,746, again, a little bit less than three miles. But these are miles of sprints. You know, they're not out there jogging. And more importantly, if you watch this match, it was two grinders at their very best. Guys who work the court, you know, usually Nadal with his lefty forehand is able to work guys over to their backhand. But Gofan's stretch backhand was just incredible. Oh, agreed. And just for some perspective, when Gofen played Dimitrov in the next round, understanding that it was a 6-0, 6-2 match, it was two sets, it was under half as many feet. How much at- did he go? So in this match, Gofen covered 7,300 feet, which is essentially half of what he covered. Yeah, it's a little in- less than half. That's it's crazy. crazy. <laughs> Are, are we are we are we doing something Dude, here? We haven't been together in a while, <laughs> so we're just back in the game. That's so it's natural. <laughs> but no, it was a great match. When you're trying to differentiate the two, because again, they did play a very similar style. The one stat I turned to was the second serve points won. Gofan went 19 of 35, which is around 54%, whereas Nadal went 19 of 41, which is 46%. Again, when the margins are so thin, when it's one break between the two at 6-4 in the third, and you know you play two tiebreakers in the first two sets, it's the little things like that that make a difference. And you watch the match, and you can tell Nadal is trying to take the backhand early as opposed to running around and hitting the forehands because his knee is bothering him. But one of my favorite things about injured Nadal he really runs to the net. I mean, he is really very comfortable moving forward now, and I think he's embraced that idea of, you know, I hit such a heavy topspin ball that these guys often are not putting much pace back, and I can cut that ball off early as opposed to now running around the forehand. Yeah, I, I would agree with you. I, I mean, I mean, hot take because it's one loss. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I think you, you see him coming in because of the injury, and it's not unexpected, but it's, it's not really Nadal's game, and, and of course we saw him pull out very soon after, which did give the leg up to Federer to win this tournament. And speaking of which, the Federer-Zverev match was oddly disappointing. Uh, you know, we expect some pretty high-quality tennis, and, and you can't say it's not high-quality tennis, but this is something that I've talked with you a bunch about. Sometimes when I watch Zverev, I feel like I'm still watching a junior. I mean, I know what you're saying in terms of his inconsistency, and it's just hard for him. You know, he did win a Masters event this year, and sure, he hasn't made a second week yet of a major, but he is a little bit better than a junior, but I see what you're saying. He <laughs> He's just definitely gets, better than he a junior. Definitely, he just gets so frustrated on the court, and it's yeah. so visible, and who am I to say this? You know, I like a good yell on the court as well, but I just feel like there are more positive ways to channel that sort of energy, you know, engaging with the crowd, pumping up yourself, pumping up your box. I think those are acceptable. Talking to your box, kind of, you know, yelling at your racket, that's when you kind of lose yourself. But it was really interesting. The first set was high-quality tennis. Zverev goes up actually 4-0 in the first set tiebreak. Again, Zverev ended up losing the match to Fed 7-6, 5-7, 6-1. 
Um, but those first two sets, it's two guys who can really smack the ball. I mean, they both, if you give them an inch of ground, they're going to take it, whether it's backhands up the lines, forehands up the lines, working angles. Um, Zverev uses his body to move forward. He's not the most comfortable volleyer, but he creates opportunities for himself just with how hard he hits the ball at the baseline. But again, that third set, it's really indicative to me. You know, he loses that third set 6-1 in the third. He just kind of lost his edge. Uh, Federer was obviously the more experienced player, and it showed. Yeah, and I, and I think it also shows in his first serve percentage. I mean, Zverev made 63% of his serves, which is pretty high for these top guys. And the fact that he can't then convert those first serves into points, I think that shows a little bit of uh, inexperience and no, I agree with you. Again, you look at his second serve points one. Zverev only wins 43% of those when Federer wins 54. That's just experience and Fed being better at protecting his serve. You know, our stat of the day is definitely distance covered, so let's just get into that. Fed, not known for tracking the most you know, distance on the court, really goes for his shots early in points and plays quicker points. Ends up covering 13,190 feet. So again, probably two and a half miles, maybe a little over that mark. Zverev covers a little bit more. You know, he goes 13,461. It's just interesting to track that. It's interesting to see the margins are pretty thin. But from that stat, you'd think Federer was the one dictating. And again, that third shot really showed Zverev kind of lost his wheels and just started making a few too many errors. And so Federer was able to take that. But entertaining match, maybe even... You know what I'm going to say? The most entertaining player of the round robin stage, America's own Jack Sock. And Woo! let's talk a little bit about two of his matches. You know, you can choose which one you want to comment on. But Jack Sock's two group stage wins, he beats Marin Cilic 5-7-6-2-7-6 to decide whether he'd make the semifinals. He beats Alex Zverev 6-4-1-6-6-4. Which match do you want to talk about? Well, I think I do want to talk about the Cilic match. But I first want to point out a crazy differential between the two. And I know we just brought this stat in and we're kind of bombarding you with it. But listen to how crazy this difference is. In Sock's match versus Chilich, he covered 18,000 feet. And like we said, that's basically three miles. And in a similar scored match against Zverev, he only covered 5,400 feet. That is less than that's a mile. A, yeah. Nope, a that's a little third. more than a mile. But still, two hundred eighty. But Just still, so nice. You got your elementary school <laughs> exactly. uh, rhymes still there. Oh, exactly. But that is insane. He covered a third of the distance in his match against Zverev. And to be honest, I wouldn't expect that. A guy like Chilich who rips the ball. I know Zverev rips the ball too, but. That's just a crazy differential for two guys that I think hit pretty big balls. Well, so let's do a little Zverev comparison because I know we talked about his match with Fed, but it's interesting that you're drawing distinctions between those two players, Chilich and Zverev, because they're both lengthy bodies. They're both able to be powerful from the baseline, and you know, they move better than most tall people, and they use their length to take the angles away from their opponents and kind of dictate really well, so... It's so fascinating that Sock traveled less. It points to, one, he did only play a 6-1 second set with Zverev, and if you watch the match, you know he kind of tanked it. Well, and, yeah, but the Chilich second set was 6-2. It's not a huge difference. It's true, but it's a 6-2 set he won, which means he was making those passing yeah, shots. Fair. He was coming to the net. Is a lot of it the fact that he goes baseline to net so frequently? Is it the sliding, you know, his ability to cover the baseline? And he hits some chip forehands. He loves hitting chip backhands, but he covers the court incredibly well. Yeah. Or at we, least he did. And we saw a little bit of, a little bit more of that against Zverev. But the other thing that we were talking about earlier was how we think Zverev might be one of the best movers 
of the guys that are over six foot five. I mean, it's true. And the fact that he's able to move that well, you'd think it'd be longer points. But clearly, this stat shows otherwise. Well, it's really funny. And let's talk about, you know, another stat in the difference between the two matches. Against Chilich, in terms of second serve points won, Sacco's 23 of 43 with 53% of those points he's winning. Against Zverev, he goes 8 of 26, wins 31% of those. So, you know, I guess when you're drawing differences between the two, Zverev... Okay, here's a bold comparison. What do you think of him as a better Burdich? And that is a really good player because Thomas Burdich, consistent top 10 threat, has made two major finals. Um, you know, again, we're a little scatterbrained here, but I just want, you know, your your opinion on this comparison because I think it is apt. They're both, you know, 6-6 guys who, once Zverev really grows his, into his frame even further up, but he's shown such significant progress. You can see him being that sort of physically imposing presence. I just think he's a little mentally tougher, and I think he's got some better skills. I think Zverev has the upside of tougher Burdich. Yeah, it's tough. I, you know, Obviously, I think he moves better. Uh, I think you would agree. I think Burdich has a bit of a better serve. I, I think he goes for his shots a little bit more. I, I see a little more down-the-line action with Burdich on the backhand. Interesting. But I see, when Zero, sorry to cut you off, but when Zero's playing his best tennis, you know, as he was in that second set against Sock, as he was in that second set against Federer, the backhand down the line is really working. And, you know, Zverev looks great when he does that. But, sorry, go ahead. I mean, I, I agree. When Zverev plays his best, he doesn't do a whole lot wrong. I think it's a fair comparison. I think if Zverev can adopt the big game that Burdich has managed to use and be effective with on tour and then use the little bit more of the movement that he's able to have as an edge over those tall guys. And even the variety on his crown strokes. Yeah, I think you're right. I think he could be one of the better 6-5 and up guys on the tour. And look, we said this earlier, he was the three seed allegedly coming into this event. And right. so he had had an incredible year. And, you know, we're again, we're a little scatterbrained in this segment, but that's because the level of tennis in every match was so high. You had only three matches not going three sets. And so... In that round-robin play, it was incredible. Everyone came to play. And also, we're super critical of him, but he's also 21 no, years old. Exactly. It's insane. And so, I I know we've beaten this to death, but again, one more time on Jack Sock. What an incredible level of tennis he displayed in the round-robin group. I mean, whether it was the on-the-run slice passing shots, the drop volleys, the incredible inside-in forehands, uh, even his willingness sometimes to step up and take that backhand flat down the line. He played incredible tennis, and look, I am a known critic of Jack Sock. To anyone who's listened to this podcast, you know I was never the biggest fan of his. He is changing my mind. He really looked that good in this event, and if he's able to sustain this level, there's no telling you know, the type of damage he could do at a major. I couldn't agree more. I think back to when he first came on tour, and people are, were always saying, is this the new American? Is he going to be in the top 10? And I got to say I was doubtful, and this tournament really, really proved that he can be in the top 10, potentially win a Grand Slam. I'm super excited for his future. But with that, we're going to hit you with a quick fake advertisement, and we'll be right back. And now, a new fake advertisement from our favorite sponsor, Wilson Overgrips. Wilson Overgrips. Alex, do you feel like every single time you regrip your racket, your racket's about to slip out of your hand? Max, I feel like the only reason I didn't make it on tour is because my grip was so bad. Well, you know what? Wilson Overgrips, 
It's almost like you're using lube on your grip. <laughs> you're telling me I can make my racket stop feeling like my... You definitely can, <laughs> and it almost feels just as good as when you actually stroke it. Is that why I have so many blisters? That you do, and let me tell you, just keep on practicing and you'll get great. Wilson Overgrip, it's not as good as Turner Grip. Welcome back to... Hey, great shot. <laughs> Was that slow motion? Yeah, it, it, it didn't come out the way I was hoping to, but <laughs> we, I tried. Well, you know, I will say the Dimitrov Sox semifinal had a much better pace than that great <laughs> shot. <laughs> but real quick, again, we just want to refresh your mind about the group play and what those standings looked like. So in the Sampras group, we had Grigor Dimitrov going 3-0. and We had David Goffin going 2-1. and We had Dominic Team going 1-2. and And we had the combination of Pablo Carreno Busta and Rafa Nadal going 0-3. In the Becker group, we had Roger Federer going 3-0, and we had Jack Sock going 2-1, and we had Alex Zverev going 1-2, and and we had Marin Cilic going 0-3. Kind of surprising to me. I, You know, Marin Cilic was not the one I expected to go 0-3. You know what? I feel like I've seen—he's been in this tournament before, and I'm almost certain last time he was in it, he was 0-3. <laughs> that may be true. You know, was Wimbledon one of those moments he'll just never get over? It oh, was just sure. disastrous. Yeah, that's it. I mean, credit to him for being at this event, but yes, not a good performance for him. But let's get into the semifinals. So let's, you know, we've beaten the Jack Sock, you know, discussion to death. So let's talk about his opponent in the semifinal. That's Grigor Dimitrov. Baby fed. <laughs> Grigor Dimitrov beats Jack Sock 4-6, 6-0, You know, Sock did have a break point at 5-3 in that third set. Again, he played an incredible level of tennis, and that carried over into this match. It seems like he lost his legs a little bit at the end, but what did you think about the match? Yeah, I I mean, we definitely saw him lose his legs a little bit, but the one thing that I've always loved about Dimitrov's game is his slice. He used it perfectly. It's gorgeous. It is. It's beautiful, and and I think that's something that, you know, I, I can't say he's worked on it over the years, but... He used it to perfection in this tournament. Well, you know, he has a one-handed backhand, so he definitely works on the backhand slice. But, yeah. hey, great shot. <laughs> but, you know, we we haven't really mentioned this part of Jack Sock's game, but given that he moves forward so often, it helps that he has incredible hands. You know, his ability to hit drop volleys, to hit the random drop shots. But you know whose hands might be a little bit better? Grigor Dimitrov's. Oh. Some of his on-the-slide drop shot cross courts that go, you know, barely over the net. Yeah. That short angle, you know, we always called it, uh, what, what do you call the game where you bounce dink like that? Dink em. Right, yeah, exactly. Great game. Everyone calls it different things. So, But yeah, I mean, D- Dimitrov sock, dink em, that would be a heck of a match. This match, equally. I can understand what you're saying I think that's more finesse to me I think Jack Sock has the hands I mean we saw him hit some pretty sexy slice drop volleys I love that you do the hand motion as you say it. dude it's it, I mean Alex for those of you who don't know has <laughs> been com- he's been comparing me a little bit to Jack Sock I, I when I just think about those slice volleys you're it's- equally polarizing oh. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, you know, I think there's a little bit of a difference between the feel in your hands 
on a drop volley and on a drop shot versus those finesse that the finesse that you need for for a slicing passing shot. You know, going again to distance covered. This is a match. Dimitrov goes five thousand four hundred fifty two feet, so a little over a mile. Sock as well, five thousand three hundred sixty four feet. Again, the big distinguishment between the two. Sock in this match only wins forty five percent of his second serve points. Dimitrov wins fifty two percent. Obviously, that six zero second set lopsided things, but it did seem like. Sock ran out of gas, and Dimitrov, to his credit, again, he was making his shots. When he, you know, that little scoop backhand flat shot down the line, that was working. Dipping the slice so well cross-court. His ability to move and slide into the forehand and, you know, hit it down the line, hit the short angle cross-court, all of it while on the run is just incredible. And and this time, this is one where the distance covered in the match— Actually, I think makes sense. You know, I would expect Sock to try and take the ball a little bit earlier in this match, try and dictate the points against a guy like Dimitrov, who's really just such a solid baseliner. So this time, yeah, you know, even though the 5,000 feet is a little bit on the lower end, I think it makes sense. Well, you know, we probably should have done this earlier on, but in terms of helping our listeners understand what distance covered means, you know, how much ground these players usually cover in a two out of three set match. I would imagine the average, and you know, I was looking at the stats, is around one and a half miles. Uh, right. You know, right so around. So closer to 7,000. I was going to say like right around 8,000. Yeah. Uh, or sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right around 8,000. That's just when you look at the stats, that is what it is. Um, but five, you know, these guys are shot makers. They're going to play quicker points again, six oh second set. I wonder how many of those points went, you know, that long. But, yeah, these are two aggressive players who, you know, both take time away from their opponent, try and take the angles away from them. I don't know. Again, a great match. And and I think this is something, and it is upsetting that we hadn't found out about this statistic until now, because I think it is really telling about the way a match was played. Because moving into the, the Go-Fed and Federer match, I think it's super telling as to why Federer lost this match. When you think about a guy like Go-Fed, who is a very consistent baseliner, who isn't really going to force you to do too much, I would expect a guy like Federer to try and stay in the point, develop it, and and wait for his shot. I think the fact that he also, in this match, only covered about 5,700 feet means he was going for big shots. He was trying to take it early, trying to end the points, and, and not really waiting for his ball. Now, I could be wrong, but... I think that is telling of, of why this match ended the way it did. Well, I mean, yeah, looking at this match, Fed, 2 of 11 on break points. Gofen, 2 of 3. Again, this is a match Gofen won, 2 6, 6 3, 6 4. So, you know, that's one break of serve in those second and third sets for Gofen. He took his opportunity away from Fed and then he protected that serve. Um, I do want to use this opportunity to take a little break from the tennis talk and get into our first gimmick of the day. Fliegner, cue the new sound effect. It's time for Alex's trivia. Oh boy. <laughs> so Rothman, David Goffin in this tournament, obviously we talked about it earlier, takes out Rafa Nadal, takes out Roger Federer now in the semifinals. He becomes the sixth player to ever beat both Roger Federer and Rafa Nadal in the same tournament. That's impressive. Can you name the five other players to do it? Oh, wow. Okay, I'm, I mean, I'm bringing the heat today, and again, shameless plug, but we did a really fun trivia competition on the Joe Kelly pod. Okay, Rothman, do it. So, I think there's an obvious two, which is Djokovic and Murray. That's very obvious. I'm yeah. glad you got those two. Um, and you said, so you said there's five. There are five. The th- <sighs> there's, you know, I think you're going to get two of the other ones. I don't think you're going to get the fifth. 
think 2009. Okay, yeah. Before you said that, I was thinking of the years where there was a Grand Slam winner that wasn't <laughs> one of the top four. So I think Delpo probably Delpo has to be. Delpo the 09 U.S. Open. Yeah, He's the other one. That doesn't surprise me. So that's three. Um, and again, Goffin is four. There are two more. These are old school players. Old school, like pre two thousand nine. Pre two thousand nine. I could be, I could be totally wrong about this, but we were talking about him. I don't even think we were talking about him in a pod. We were just talking about how we thought this player was someone who was gonna be big and had little spurts. Was David Danko <laughs> one of that? Was he, it was was he one Danko. of them? That's crazy. That is one of them. That is who I thought you would guess. That's so funny. And it's really great because Davi Danko was one of my older brother's favorite players. He wants on he CBS. He was fun to watch. You know, CBS used to cover the weekends of the U.S. Opens uh-huh. before ESPN had it all. And the announcer used to always go, and Davi Danko holds. <laughs> and so my brother said when he used to serve and hold, he'd go, and Gruskin holds. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yes, Davi Danko is number five. All right, you got to let me You gotta let me guess the last person. Okay. No hints. No hints. Can, one hint. He was once thrown out of a match. <laughs> How many people have been thrown out of matches? Not that many. Okay. Come yeah. on. Because he kicked something. I'm not going to give you another hint. Again, another Davidenko era player. Yeah, really I mean, talented. The second I hear about getting thrown out of a match, like for some reason my head goes to Fernando Gonzalez. But <laughs> that's wrong because there's no way he took out both of them in the same. It was tournament. not Gonzo. I don't know. It was David Nelbandian. Oh my god! It makes sense. Now Bandian did it. What tournament was that? Both in Madrid and Paris, 2007. So twice in one year. Really impressive for him. Yeah, he had some good years back I then. I know, great players. But so, okay, let's get back to David Goffin. And, you know, first he plays Roger Federer in the semifinal. Then he plays baby-fed Grigor Dimitrov in the final. Break us down. What happened in that match? So, yeah, definitely got to give credit to Goffin. Coming back from an 0-2 loss to a three-setter with Dimitrov just a couple days apart. I mean, he definitely learned from his mistakes in the first match and, and really turned something around. Well, I want to compare the two stats between the matches because it really is a tale of two different things. Uh, You look at the first match in terms of distance covered. Dimitrov covers 7,816 feet. Goffin does 7,371. In the second match, Dimitrov is covering 8,263. So obviously, you know, 1,000 feet is a significant amount of sprints in tennis terms. Uh, Goffin does a relatively similar 7,586. So obviously, Goffin found a way to dictate a little bit more in that second match. Again, Dimitrov played out of his mind in the first match. And in this match, there was a ton of shot making. Uh, You have two guys who are incredibly athletic, who are able to hit while stretched and not only get the ball back in play, but also do a little bit of damage. And you mentioned, you know, you're not that confident in Goffin. I am of the exact opposite nature. I think Goffin, his floor is so high, given the relative dips we've seen of players like Dimitrov, like Rayonich, like Sok, people who are his contemporaries in terms of age. I'll even throw Chilich in there. Their, you know, their ceilings may be a little bit higher in terms of they can play a little bit better tennis. And again, two guys who also come to mind, Team and Kyrgios, guys who strike you with a little more firepower and who, when they're dictating, can take the game out of their opponent's hands. But given, you know, how hard it is to play that well over two weeks to sustain that level of excellence, there is no reason to me why David Goffin, given how fit he is, 
couldn't steal a major. You know, particularly oh, with how hard it is to grind at the baseline. Break. I know that was a long that rant. Was ridiculous. <laughs> okay. I will say that there were moments in his match where he came into the net, you know, utilized the volley well. Sure, he moves well on the run, but he he just doesn't do anything out of the ordinary. I mean, I disagree. He's a First, good his foot baseline speed is out of the ordinary. Yeah, but there's a lot of guys who have out of the ordinary foot oh, speed. Oh, no, but okay. Oh, sorry. I would say Dimitrov is just good foot speed as Oh, okay, Gofen. but they both Yeah, and they're in the World Tour final. Okay, and Dimitrov <laughs> has a beautiful slice that he can utilize. He's got a great forehand and he controls the court. The difference is over two weeks, there's a chance over those eight matches, Dimitrov throws a stinker. He, you know, someone's a lefty and just happens to pick on his backhand or okay, but his that's... shot making isn't working. Goffin, you know, we saw it over these two weeks. We've seen him in Davis Cup take Belgium to the finals on multiple occasions. You know, Belgium's not exactly a hotbed for tennis talent, but he's winning two singles rubbers and he did that again this year. He is able to play such an excellent level of tennis in each match. There's no reason, again, why if he is playing well and the other players are not or they have a brutal quarterfinal, he could win enough matches to win a major. But but see, okay, that's where I disagree because Dimitrov, of course, that's why he hasn't won a Grand Slam is because, yeah, he can blow a match because of the, the little bit of inconsistency in his game. But unless you have something that, really separates you from the other top guys. I can't see him in a semifinal or a final against a Federer, a Nadal, a Djokovic, or a Rinko, who all have firepower and parts of their game that absolutely distinguish themselves from the rest of the field. I don't see him, you know, utilizing the volley to his advantage or really bringing in some aspect of his game that's going to allow him to take over those top guys. Well, I will say his one weakness, and it's really funny because, again, in looking between the first and second encounters of Dimitrov and Goffin, you're looking for a stat to distinguish the two. Second serve points converted in the second match. Goffin goes 22 of 53, winning 42%. Pretty bad, right? Guess what he was in the first match? 30%. In the first match, Goffin goes 5 of 25, 20% of the points won. So, that's rough. So I agree with you. His second serve is a liability, and you know that comes back to his stature. Yeah, he can I think he's about 6'2", maybe 6'2". Again, moves really well, a bit on the frailer side. That being said, produces tremendous pace on the backhand, whether it's the backhand down the line, whether it's the backhand cross-court. I just think he's got a beautiful swing. And yeah, I yeah, think because it looks like your backhand. <laughs> sure. <laughs> but again, just... There's no shot in the book he can't hit. And we saw him willing to move forward and hit, you know, swinging volleys. We saw him, you know, cutting off volleys and trying to hit drop volleys. And yes, Dimitrov played better. And I made this point earlier. The ceiling of a Grigor Dimitrov is higher than the ceiling of a David Goffin. That doesn't mean Goffin couldn't win a slam. He His baseline is good enough. He plays that good a, a level of tennis. And, you know, we talked about it earlier. We saw it all tournament long. But, but I think that the baseline care. The baseline of the top 10 guys typically will carry them to a quarterfinal. Once you get there, that is when the level elevates. And I'm sorry, I just don't see Gofen elevating his level to a place where he can actually take down two or maybe three guys in a row who are playing at that level. Well, so let's end this conversation by talking about the year-end top 10 rankings. We're ending the year with Rafa number one, Fed number two, Dimitrov, number three, career high. Crazy. Zverev, number four. I think he peaked up to number three a little earlier in the year, but 
Still, number four for a 20-year-old. Nuts. Team number five, Chilich six, Gofen seven, Sock eight, and injured Wawrinka still manages number nine, and Pablo Carreno Busta at number 10. A couple other people just outside the top 10, Delpo at 11, which good for him, Djokovic 12, Murray all the way down at 16, Rayonich 26, I think it's funny, so I'm just going to mention these two guys as well, Tomic 142, <sighs> Gulbis 200, you know, I feel like Rough it wasn't years. that long ago that Gulbis was in a French Open semifinal. But of those contenders, of those people in the rankings we mentioned, and you know, I didn't say Nishikori. Why couldn't GoFan compete with those guys? Who's coming into 2018 and you're saying, you know what, they for sure are going to beat a David GoFan? I mean, I think, honestly, this top 10 year-end ranking is a bit of a fluke. And and so, sure, right now, in the current top 10, yeah, you know, maybe he's able to compete with most of those guys. I mean, he did compete with Zverev. He has competed with TM. He has competed with Chilich. Throw a healthy Murray. Throw a healthy joke. Joke. I'm happy back to include it. Murray. Yeah, I know you are, you <laughs> Murray lover. If you throw those two back into the mix, and you got the top four guys back in there, maybe Anishi Corey makes a bit of a push. That's just too many guys who are so strong to then throw in with a Grigor, with a Zverev, and a TM. That's just too much high level and high quality play. To compete with for an entire tournament. Well, look, Rafa and Fed won two majors this year. I feel very confident saying that's not going to happen next year. Oh, definitely and, not. You know, in terms of best surfaces, GoFan, and we've we beat the GoFan bush, so we can move on in a second. But I think hard courts, Australian Open, U.S. Open, those are his two best chances. I think on clay, if Rafa's healthy, he's obviously the guy to beat. Yeah. After that, you know, team early season on clay is dangerous. And you know, we saw Zverev win a Masters on clay, so it's only a matter of time for him. But he is going to have opportunity. You know, it wouldn't shock me to see him fourth rounder better in all of these stages. It wouldn't shock me to see Dimitrov, Sak, these players who have lost in early rounds, do that again. And so in terms of who's consistently going to have the best shot, you know, for years we just saw the big four in the semifinals. I think Goffin's going to be the guy who replaces that, who becomes the Burdich or, you know, maybe even... Well, no, no, no. I'll go with Burditch, who can make a final if, you know, someone else loses and there's an opportunity just because he is playing well. Hey, you know what? And I'd love to see yeah, how I'm next year goes. I'm very passionate about this, if you can't tell. But I think we definitely have beaten GoFan into the ground. I think it's super important to talk about our American fellows. We love Sock. He finishes the year. Well, I will just say shameless plug, but I'm going to compare Tommy Paul to David Goffin in a second. So this wow. is actually all just been a setup for the Tommy Paul pod. <laughs> but sorry, go on. Um, but yeah, no, we, we've been talking about Sock. Love to see an American break the top 10. Uh, so I think it's important to, to check out the top 10 Americans year end. Shout out Parsa for, for hooking us up with these <laughs> rankings. We got Socket number eight, Query number 13, Isnert number 17, Stevie at 44, <laughs> Harrison at 47. Shut up. I can call him Stevie. He's from Southern California. Jared Donaldson at 54, D. Young at 61, Tiafo at 79, Sandgren at 96, and my boy Taylor Fritz at 105. Okay. I mean, so again, nine Americans in the top 100. Very good year. I like that. Ten per- uh, almost 10% of uh, 
Top 100 are American? Yeah. That's nice. Yeah, and I'm not sure, but I think all 10 of those guys will get direct acceptance into the Australian Open, you know, particularly after people pull out with injuries Mm -hmm. and whatnot. So that's always a good foundation. I want to ask you, are we going to have – well, I guess a two-part question. One, who are going to be the top 10 ranked Americans to end 2018? And then part two, will there be more than nine Americans in the top 100? And this is a continuation of a question I asked Jonathan Kelly. So I can answer part two definitively and say yes. Definitive yes. Definitive yes. You don't think anyone's going to drop out that's nope. in there? Not even Sandgren, who's got a ton of points to defend. Yeah, sure. But I think he's one of those guys who is improving. But he, he's going to play ATP. Sorry to cut you off, but he will be playing ATP level as opposed to challengers. Yeah, and I think that this is where he can take his confidence that he's gained from the challengers and take that into the ATP tournaments. And, you know, you make a couple rounds in some of these bigger tournaments that's a lot of points he all he needs is one tournament to to you know quote unquote tree and you know make up for some of those points that he might lose that being said i don't think i could you know give you an exact list of my top 10 americans but i think we will definitely be seeing some of these next gen guys in the top 10 at the end of next year so right now the only next gen guys in there are donaldson and tiafo Oh, and Fritz, sorry, at number 10. Obviously, you have Tommy Paul hovering around there, Kozlov, Escobedo, Fertangelo, Kruger, uh, Kudla, Smichek. How many of those guys do you see cracking the top 100? I got to think, you know, Escobedo has early points to defend that ATP 250 semifinal. Uh, But I could see him cracking the top 100. You know, I could see Opelka. I could see Paul. I could see Kozlov. We interviewed Ruben, and I said this earlier. I'll continue to say I could see him doing it. I think Bjorn Fertangelo looks really good. I agree with you. In terms of which of these guys I think are going to fall off, I think Sandgren really might. I just think it's 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 hard. You know, you start qualifying for these ATPs, and you lose a bunch of first rounds, or you have to go through qualifying, and you don't even make the main draw. But for the first time, you're in qualifying. Uh, It's really hard to defend those points. I agree. Fritz will make a jump into the top 100. It's only a matter of time, and he doesn't have any clay season points to defend, so that'll be a big thing for him. Yeah. I agree with you. The future's looking bright. It was a great 2017. It will be a great 2018. One last thing I want to do before we get to our changeover chat, because, of course, there must always be a changeover chat. I wanted to ask you this earlier, but in terms of the prize money for this ATP World Tour Finals and why all of these players should keep playing it and, you know, not skip it and treat it like it's the NFL Pro Bowl, how much money are these guys making per match? So I was looking through this before we hopped on here, and I remember I was looking at the draw and seeing the prize money, and it is astonishing. So just for being in the tournament, you make $191,000. Hundred ninety one thousand. Just, just that's for, if you finish all three matches. Yep, you finish. So, three Marin Cilic played three matches of tennis, lost all three, <laughs> and came out with a hundred ninety one thousand dollars. Freaking ridiculous! I How mean, much did Dimitrov make? So, for our winner, who he was able to, it's five matches. So that's five matches. Took all three in the opening round. So each match in the opening round is one hundred ninety one thousand. The semifinals and finals are are weighted more heavily. Coming out as a winner of this tournament, two point five million dollars. He's literally being paid five hundred thousand dollars a match. Yep, 
that's freaking ridiculous. And and this is as much as a Grand Slam. Uh, that's nuts. And it's only eight players, and they just get to share in this beautiful pool of money. Yep. You have Gofen who made one point one million. You have Federer who made seven hundred sixty four thousand dollars. You had Jack Sock who made a nice five hundred seventy three thousand dollars. And the rest are still making in in the low hundred thousand dollar levels. I mean that's ridiculous for a tournament. People say tennis isn't healthy. I beg <laughs> to differ. Uh, let's start giving some of that money though to the challengers and futures level. So I you know, couldn't agree can, more. Yeah, we can watch a little bit more of those matches. But okay, with that, the 2017 season is in the books. It was a great season, and of course, excellent tennis. Only thing better than the tennis are changeover chats, and we'll be right back with it. So stick around. And now, a new fake advertisement from our new sponsor, The Grunt App. The Grunt App. Uh. Uh. Oh! Uh. Uh. What? The Grunt App. Welcome back to... Hey, great shot. I couldn't hear you. Well, it's time for this... <laughs> it's time for our favorite segment of the show. Can you hear me now? That I can. <laughs> no, that was our new segment. Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? <laughs> Damn, I love that commercial. I know. That's what I'm saying. We're actually just going to do a segment of our favorite commercials all the time. <laughs> Mine's definitely 187. Uh, no. Clearly isn't your favorite. It's not my favorite. I, I, I was scrambling through a bunch. It's probably Mr. Allen's 29 or 2 for 50. Uh, should I know that? Oh, that's a Michigan thing. That's a good point. Oh, classic. Oh, should they? Yeah, well, what do you like, the Fago girls? Because they're all <laughs> California orange. Or or what about the uh, <laughs> the meow mix? <laughs> <laughs> On that note, the <laughs> talking has started. That means it's time for everyone's favorite segment of the show. It's time for this week's Cue the Drum Roll. The Changeover Chat. The Changeover Chat. <laughs> So this week's changeover chat, we're going to do a couple of fun things. Um, Obviously, we're recapping end-of-year events, and one of my favorite events, but I know not necessarily one of Rothman's, is the Davis Cup event. You know, I'm a huge fan of team tennis, and of course, this year, the French team, that generation of Sanga, Beneteau, Simone, Monfils, Gasquet, those guys were able, you know, along with, sorry, Mahout and Herbert, um, they were actually able to take home their first Davis Cup title as a group. They defeated, you know, David Goffin's Belgium. Goffin was able to rebound right after the World Tour Finals, actually win both of his singles matches, but Puy won the clincher against, I believe, Steve Darcy's of Belgium. Uh, he won that match in straight sets. I'm a huge proponent of Davis Cup, and, you know... Again, as I said earlier, as I said in our Laver Cup episode, as I've said repeatedly, tennis is more fun as a team sport when you have teammates who are also players on the sideline who are cheering you on, who can come out there and coach you, who are you know, taking an active part in this match and they want to win because they're playing for something more than themselves. I love Davis Cup. Why do you disagree? Okay, so you're making me look bad over here saying <laughs> I don't like you're Davis Cup. You're a redhead Cup. who hates Davis Cup. Yeah, you make me look like a freaking communist over here. That's why we fired Jim Curry. (laughs) (laughs) But look, I can't say I don't like Davis Cup. I'm on, I played club tennis for three years. I'm in my fourth year. I love team tennis. But I think the real issue with Davis Cup is that we have the Olympics. To me, I see, and I think a lot of the players see Davis Cup as this kind of intermediary team tennis for your country 
before you get to the Olympics. I feel like the Olympics is where you're finally like, all right, here's where I'm playing with my team. Here's where I'm playing for my country. Here's where it really matters. So I'm going to disagree with you. One, the Olympics are rarefied. You know, it's once every four years versus every Right, year. but I think that's what makes it... No, that's it... not enough. <laughs> I want it every no, year. No, right, which is why I think we have Davis Cup because people are like, holy I love team tennis. I love watching... You should watching... Fed Cup too. Right, and I think they say, oh, I love watching people play for the country. I love the team tennis aspect, but I'm saying as a player, I think that there's a little bit more, you know, desire to really win in an Olympic because it only comes every so often. Well, why I disagree with you, and you mentioned, you know, in the Olympics, you are playing for a team. I guess you are because you're playing for your country, but those draws are all individual. You know, it's not Team USA in a club tennis format where it's three guys and three girls versus the three guys and three girls of France versus, you know, all of these teams with mutual teams. Davis Cup, it is, you know, two singles rubbers, a doubles rubber, and then your next two in your, you know, reverse singles order. And there are usually three guys on your team at least because oftentimes you have a double specialist, you know, a superstar. I mean, the, the team that comes to mind, I should say the U.S., but I'm going to say Great Britain because you have Andy Murray playing one and then you have either Dan Evans or Kyle Edmund playing two. And, you know, usually they lose and the year Great Britain was able to win, they had the Murrays playing doubles together and, you know, they won crucial rubbers and Murray didn't lose a match all Davis Cup. Obviously, I followed that very closely. Um, <laughs> yeah, are you sure? <laughs> <laughs> My point being, Davis Cup, the team tennis aspect, the idea, you have such active crowds, and you know, these European crowds, whether it's in Belgium, whether it's in France, whether it's in Spain, they really get into their Davis Cup. And even when it was Laver Cup, another team event, you saw these active crowds who are so into these events. I just think Davis Cup's the best way to have fan interaction. You want, you know, tribalism, again, not something we're a fan of on this podcast, but there's something about being out there and rooting for one of the teams, specifically wanting one team to win and the other to lose. And, you know, you feel more invested in the match. You feel like you need your side to win. I will say one thing that I've always hated about tennis is the lack of fan interaction and the lack of kind of spontaneity and willingness of fans to just be a little bit obnoxious and ridiculous. <laughs> you would be pegging fans. Oh, I would <laughs> I would be doing things that would be over the line, no doubt about that. But no, I Bandian. <laughs> Seriously. But I agree. I think that is one of the coolest aspects of Davis Cup. You get the rowdiness. You get, I mean, when I think of a time outside of Davis Cup where fans are actually rowdy and excited and energized the only circumstance I can think of and I know you're gonna laugh is when Duty Sella comes to play <laughs> and he's got his Israeli fans in the back going Duty Duty I mean that's like the only time that I ever see fans getting super engaged and energetic about tennis well I think some of those Del Potro fans are really fun. I think the Australian yeah. crowds at the Australian yeah, Open. Yeah, Australian Open has they some great fans. Nuts. They it's do. Always Aussie, but they're always Aussie, silenced Aussie. by the by the umps. Oh, the umps, the refs, no, the they're line not. judges. First yeah. of all, I don't, when has a ref ever been like, please, please? All the time. Oh, not on changeovers. Oh. Okay, not on changeovers. Okay, well, you can't be doing it during the point. But if you look at Davis Cup, they are rowdy yeah, until yeah, literally the, the second they're, they're serving. They're beating the drum. You're yeah, not man. wrong. You're not wrong. I, okay, you're, and this is why I'm a proponent of Davis Cup because sure. they're not. And some of these young players, they do say, you know, I want to be the top-ranked American so that I can play Davis Cup. Yeah, and yeah. It's just amazing to me that 
with Jack Sock now playing as well as he is. The Bryans are a little bit past their prime, but, you know, a team of Sock and Johnson that won Olympic bronze. We've got some fun Davis Cup teams on the way, and I think with this infusion of next-gen talent, it's going to be a lot of fun to watch. I completely agree, and I think there's some really cool rituals that some of these fans have. <laughs> so and you're spe- not anti-Davis Cup. <laughs> okay. like, I never said I was anti-Davis Cup. I just think that the Olympics get a little bit more attention and hype and the, the players care a little bit more. That being said, I think there are some very cool rituals that the fans have when it comes to cheering for these guys, and that's going to help us segue into <laughs> our next changeover chat, on some of the most interesting rituals that we see in players, both pre and during matches. Speaking of which, I hate that I'm bringing this up. Nadal pulling on his ass. I mean, that's the most classic ritual <laughs> ever. But I recently have had to take on a new partner on the club tennis team. It's a sad day. <laughs> Alex, our rituals are gone. <laughs> Well, but, let's, let's talk about what we did. I mean, we were a pre-match. Well, we we talked a lot. We we yeah. did a lot, a lot of noise. We were not fun to play out. No, I would have hated playing me, <laughs> for sure. That I'd be like, what's that ginger kid just doing over there being? Well, I just, we were a lot of fun. We brought a lot of energy. We were cocky, but, I mean, a lot of it. So, of course, before every match, the same handshake, you know, clap, clap, yeah. fist bump, handshake, you know, very classy. And then we're high-fiving between every point, which I think is a must as a doubles team. You're yeah. not really, you know, this is a little crazy, but there's something about the physical contact about saying, yo, good shot up here yeah. with you. And, you know, something as little as a high-five, it counts. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's uh, something you see not enough of in doubles teams on the tour. I think you obviously see it with the Bryan brothers, and can we say that's why they're so successful? <laughs> I don't know. Well, the Bryan brothers is a weird example, but I guess we've all seen Game of Thrones now, so incest is in fashion. <laughs> but for me, my comparison is when you're playing with a new doubles partner, it's really like starting a new relationship. You know, you have to see what positions you're both good at. You have to see how much touching is appropriate. You have to find out what their habits are, you know, what they like to do, what they don't like to do. Uh, obviously, I need a girlfriend, and this is going to be a recurring theme on this show, it seems. That is without a question. <laughs> but no, it it's something very interesting. You know, the Bryans, again, the belly bump, underappreciated. But when you have something like that to look forward to, and again, we always did the same handshake after matches, win or lose. Um it it's something it's it's something it certainly makes for team chemistry you know sock and pospisil they looked like they had a lot of fun yeah i agree and, and i think we also see some pretty interesting rituals on tour today and, and in the past the one that i always loved and i think i actually picked up on a little bit when i started playing was the rotic shoulder <laughs> the, the shoulder thing with his shirt we always picked it up with his left hand before he served you know, there's that. You got the Frederick behind the ears, then a doll behind the ears, <laughs> then a doll crack classic. And the doll has got some crazy hot water, like cold water or whatever. He always puts like one by his left heel I and then know. one. It's the steps. I mean, I understand you have to have a little bit of consistency in your in your rituals to feel like you've got yourself ready and mentally ready for a match. Well, I mean, for me, it's always four bounces before the serve. I mean, uh-huh. that's the most basic, but it's something you just got to do. The one guy who I don't understand is Djokovic and his ball bounces. It's the most sporadic and inconsistent yeah. thing I've ever seen. I mean, I also, you know, Djokovic, true, I can only speak from experience in terms of habits. Uh, 
I never sit down on changeovers. I just don't like it. It's not my thing. I also don't like to take drinks, especially when it was yeah, one which is a, just like, a huge, which was one of our biggest. Well, no, because I would kinda, stand there and we'd chat. Yeah, and I'd be sitting there guzzling and water, and you're just you're like, come on. I'm like, what do you mean, come on? This I like is to the, play. The whole point of a break is to take a <laughs> break. It's doubles, no ad. You don't need a break. Okay, yeah, I'm out of shape. I get it. That's funny. But speaking of rituals, something players get to do every tournament is have their player box. You know, they get their group, whether it's their physio, their coaches, their family, sit in the player box with you. Fun question for us to end on. You are in the Wimbledon center court final. Who is in your player box? And I will give you six names. Six, that's it? Yes. Okay. I know there's some friction in your personal life, so tread carefully. (laughs) So... I'm definitely going to go with the two younger bros. And I just know. How about this? Exception for mom, dad, and two bros. They can have, like, oh, it sucks. See, we, it, we both have a four-person family. See, here's the thing is I tough. actually think I would need my both my parents, like, on the opposite <laughs> side of the stadium. Because every time I, I would miss, dad will throw a tantrum. <laughs> every time I would miss, mom would, hands in the face. I can't handle that. It. Trust me, once I got my license and I could drive myself to tournaments, it was beautiful. So, sure. Besides them, I think I got to go, honestly, with both. Me. Wow. Yeah. Come I, on. I take you. Are you serious? But I better be in your box it as well. It was unmistakable, <laughs> obviously. Um, but yeah, I, I think I got to go with definitely the two grandpas. Oh, Great move. Veteran I mean, move. both played tennis in, in their younger lives. Grandpa, my mom's father, was actually on the Duke tennis team way back in the day. Um, you know, they, they're not as <laughs> personally invested in the tennis, so they can remove themselves a little bit, which is nice. Um, but yeah, I think I'd, I'd go with the grandpas and the bros. Okay, two more. No coach? Your coach does. I'm your coach. Oh, well, you, then fine. Yeah, you and my coach. Okay. Who, who would be the coach you choose? Which coach in your life? Definitely, I'd definitely have to go with Blake, my my most recent coach. He he's so stoic. I actually never <laughs> know what he's thinking, and this would always happen when he'd watch. I wouldn't really know what he's thinking, and then I'd come off the court, and then I'd say one thing, and then everything would flow out of his mouth. <laughs> like everything he was thinking, I think, from the past two hours of playing, just flowed. <laughs> so I like that. I like not having too much at least negative reactions out of the people that are watching. Well, you know, the reason I said Wimbledon is, given my recent engagement to Meghan Markle, I'll be sitting in the royal box. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> but no, obviously, front row would be my older and younger brother. Eric and Nikki are staples. I also have to have my mom in there just to make sure she survives the experience. Oh, and, God, she may not. <laughs> and if I was winning, there would be no one more enjoyable to turn to than her. My dad's got to be in there because he'll be the stoic one as well. He'll just be every yeah. time I'll get a clap, no matter what. And you know, if I embarrass myself in front of the queen, he'll quickly call me out. And um, then hopefully, it, I'm <laughs> trying to think in terms of my extras. I mean, definitely you. Obviously, I would need you would be in the front row as well. Uh, it the would prob- just be too fun. The problem if we were in each other's boxes <laughs> no, is that we would actually get in trouble for giving advice signals. And, and signals. Sign- <laughs> Like, we would have some discreet signals where they'd actually, they wouldn't know what we were doing, and they'd probably think we were calling in some crazy play, and realistically, it was probably just like a, hey, how you doing? (laughs) 
Well, I feel like that's one of those things. <laughs> that's so funny. You're just, I have nothing more to say. You're absolutely right. In terms of coach, I, I'd probably bring, uh, I don't know, man. I couldn't bring Kaushik because he betrayed me and took you on as his doubles partner. And now it's enemy TV hitting on you the whole time. Yeah. It's, <laughs> don't worry. You're always doubles partner number one. Sorry, Sam Hummel. Oh, I probably have to take Abe. Abe in there in the box would keep me grounded. It'd keep Abe. me focused. I'm sorry, Fliegner. Obviously, you're, I imagine you're in the booth producing the match because you'll have made it out of all of us. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, um, quick follow-up to that, and then we'll leave. Who would you be playing in that match? <laughs> Dream scenario. Fed? Yeah. Have to. I mean, it's Murray. Murray at Wimbledon. God, Even if the whole crowd was against I me. I hate you. I'd be looking at my box like, ah, yeah, 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 yeah. That's, like what you'd be, that, that's what you would be doing? Jeez. We, we got some work to do on your celebration. <laughs> oh, I do the flop after every point. <laughs> <laughs> the, the FIFA flop. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But on that note, Max Rothman, thank you as always. It's incredibly fun to have you back in the booth. Uh, You're speechless. <laughs> can, I can't even... I made it. I'm here. It's been an hour or so. You're yeah, out of work. I, I checked the, the recording and I was... Very confused for a second. I thought we'd been recording for two hours, and whew, if we had done that, I probably would have murdered you at this point. So. <laughs> Bonus pod. <laughs> but on that note, for Alex Gruskin, for Max Rothman, for our super producer, Max Fleener, who, as always, has a hell of a job to do, we say to you, Hey, good, 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 good. great shot. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and we'll see you next week. Thanks, everyone. Shop Production. Production.